Is this loud enough? Okay. I'm going to be reading through the NIV version. All right. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such bran branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Reading the message version. I am the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes, and every branch that is grape-bearing, he prunes back so it will bear even more. You are already pruned back by the message I have spoken. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine. You are the branches. When you are joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But you make, but if you make yourselves at home in me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the tree of life. So what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it, or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. And when humans do that, it leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. And so here's the thing. Both trees look beautiful, but one of them is a false tree of life. And the humans take from this false tree of life. And they're exiled from the garden. 
for good. Which raises the question, can anyone ever get back to the Tree of Life? Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses, and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush, where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the Tree of Life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. But Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. Well, it seemed that way, but Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it, helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden which is also a kind of temple, with the tree of life at its center, providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. If anyone uh, wants to bring their little ones up to the nursery, uh, feel free to do so. If you're new to this church, it's just up the stairs, the first door there. Uh, but Kids are also totally welcome to stay in the service, so that is just an option for you. What kind of fruit do you want your life to bear? One day, um, each of us will wake up and realize that we have become a certain kind of person, right? A certain kind of spouse, a certain kind of parent, a certain kind of son or daughter, a certain kind of friend, employee, employer, and neighbor. Are you becoming the type of person that you intend to be? Um, I, I used to hate uh, going to funerals because 
I just hate everything to do with death. And uh, I think that's quite normal. I think God designed us with that. Um, but as I've grown older, I have learned to appreciate something about them. And that is that they ground me to the reality that my days uh, in this life are numbered and they remind me to choose, uh, or they remind me that who I choose to be today matters. At funerals, uh, we tend to share memories of the person who's passed away. And this is both the part that uh, I fear most about my own pending funeral, but it's also the part that gives me the most motivation. Because it always makes me ask, who do I want people to remember me as? Uh, two funerals that I've attended will always stick out to me. Uh, a number of years ago, I was at a funeral where uh, I actually didn't know the person who had passed away at all, but I had a very loose connection to the family, and so I went and, and helped out with that. And so when the time came for people to kind of come up and share some words or memories of this person, I was very interested to hear who was this guy? What kind of a person was he? What legacy did he leave behind? And you know what every single person said to different degrees of variation, but they were all saying the exact same thing. That this man was a funny guy, good at fishing, and man, did he love having a good time. That was it. Story after story after story. And it felt so shallow and so hollow, and it was sad not to hear stories of greater depth and meaning. Contrast that funeral with another one a number of years ago. It was uh, the funeral of my old choir director at Providence Bible College, Dr. Henry Schellenberg. And do you know how people remembered him? Hundreds of people flooded the church that day and story after story was shared about how Henry had impacted the lives of people. How he cared for students and always made them feel welcomed and loved and encouraged. How he was so patient with those of us who were so immature at the time. I was one of them how he was a faithful and loving father and husband, how he always had time for people. He never seemed to be anxious or overhurried. He was known for his gentleness, his steadfastness, even through hard times like his cancer, his patience with people, his warm hospitality always expressed in baking cookies for students. Henry was known for his gifts for using his gifts, his energy, and his time to love others and literally bring praise to God with his work and his life. And as you began to pick up how people were describing him, you began to notice that the way people described him were by the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And of course, Henry was human and he had flaws, but the most evident thing about him, how he was remembered by his wife, his kids, his community, and his students, was by the fruit of the Spirit. It was truly a celebration of life. What fruit is evident in your life? 
<clears throat> what is evident in mine? Um, I know that I still have a very long way to go into becoming the person I intend to be. Maybe you can relate. And while we cannot change our past and we do not have a guarantee of tomorrow, we do have an opportunity today to decide what kind of a person do I choose to be today? Am I abiding in all kinds of false trees of life that was mentioned in that Bible project video? Or am I abiding in the true vine which by its very nature is life-giving and producing good fruit? Uh, if you've been with us the past three weeks, Jeff has been uh, vulnerable in sharing his own journey as of late, reflecting on some of the lies that he had unconsciously come to believe about reality, about his own self-worth, about God. And in different ways, all of us can be tempted to abide in these false trees of life, these messages that kind of creep in that are actually not true. But out of his sabbatical, Jeff shared um, a renewed vision for abiding in this true tree of life, uh, of abiding in Christ. And he shared about the true story of God that he believes and wants to live into. He shared about his values and practices that he's been rediscovering that lead him to pursuing loving God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he shared his pastoral vision for wanting our whole church to experience whole person transformation and maturity in Christ. And I want that for my life too, and I want that for our church as well. I want to live the kind of life that my choir director lived. I'm not a choir director, but the kind of life that he lived, the way people knew him as. A life so evidently marked by the fruit that comes from a life of abiding in Christ. So what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about when he says that abiding in him as disciples will produce much fruit? Well, if you read chapter 14, John chapter 14, so the chapter just before our text and chapter 15, you'll realize that the fruit Jesus mentions is love, joy, and peace. And then later, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 expands on that and adds to it. They're not different fruit. It's the same fruit of the Spirit from different angles. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity. So how do we get on a trajectory to where we are becoming all that God has intended us to be? How do we bridge the gap between who we are in actuality and who we intend to be? If this is sounding an awful lot like our spiritual formation series we did in August, that's good. It means you've been paying attention. It's meant to do that. It's building off of that series we did back in August. Here it is. The way that we abide in Christ and ensure that good fruit and abundant fruit is growing in our life is through something called a rule of life. What is a rule of life? Well, first off, it's not rules, plural. It's not rules of life. It's not about adding a bunch of to-dos and not-dos to your already busy life. If anything, it's actually about doing less. It's about decluttering your life and identifying what do I want to structure my life around that's actually important, that's actually meaningful. 
That's actually shaping me into the person I want to become. The word rule comes from Latin regula, or where we get the English word ruler, that instrument that you uh, students use in school to draw a straight line, or if you're on a construction site, to draw a straight line from point A to point B. So if our starting point is where we currently are, and who we currently want to become is over here, then a regula or a ruler helps us draw a trajectory towards that. Before the Latin translation, um, we understand the New Testament to be written in Greek. Rule of life was actually taken from Greek, which is meant uh, or believed to be a trellis. What's a trellis? Well, we're not far from wine country here. The Okanagan is just up the road, a couple hours. And what, what grape farmers use to allow grape vines to grow are trellises. These are, they are these structures where the vines can grow up and these structures support the weight of the fruit. See, a grapevine will totally grow on the ground if you leave it there. It might even grow some grapes. Um, other vine plants do the same things. Think about your tomatoes and your cucumbers, right? But it's going to get all tangly, growing in on itself, which will restrict sunlight and therefore limit the amount of good, mature fruit that can grow. And on top of that, left on the ground, the grapes are just easy access for pests and worms and it will begin to decompose on the ground. But a trellis is a structure that lifts the vine off of the ground, allowing the plant to grow up and to be exposed to the sunlight and the air. A trellis is a support that is able to carry the weight of the fruit and of the vine. Essentially, a trellis helps the vine and its fruit to grow into its full potential, into what it's intended or designed to be and produce. And so the phrase rule of life, it came from early Christians reflecting on John 15 and saying, okay, like we're a bunch of farmers in that, in that culture and they, they took things very, it was, it was a very real example. And so they looked at these vines and said, okay, if we're like branches connected to a grapevine, well, that means that we're part of that vine too. And just like grapevines need a trellis or some kind of a structure so that it can maximize its potential, hey, maybe we as Christians also need some sort of a trellis to help us abide in Jesus, to help us actually produce that abundant and good fruit that Jesus and Paul are talking about. And so in the fourth and fifth century, when the church had become corrupted by the influence of the world uh, after the time of Constantine, church and state had kind of been in bed together, when Christianity had become diluted by the culture and when it was thought that perhaps Christianity was just going to be extinguished, a bunch of Christians from all over the Middle East went into the desert to discern how do we go back to abiding in Christ? Or as Jeff was sharing last week, how do we keep ourselves from losing our souls and guarding our hearts? Well, these Christians, known as the Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers, came up with a rule of life, a way of structuring life in such a way that everything they did kept them connected to Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, the church didn't die. 
Christianity was not extinguished. In fact, people from major centers started to go into the desert looking for this community, wanting to learn from them how to abide in Christ. And the beautiful thing is, they didn't stay in the desert forever. They weren't monks and nuns that just completely isolated themselves from society forever. They came back into the world transformed. Fast forward many years, and you discover that every time it seems like the hope of the church was lost, new life began. A revival happened, and the leaders behind all the great revivals and church renewals were all leaders who, behind the scenes, had a rule of life. Everyone from St. Augustine to John Wesley to Mother Teresa to Billy Graham all had a rule of life. I'm not making that up. Somewhere along our church history, this core value and way of structuring life was kind of forgotten or minimized. At least I didn't really grow up in a church culture where, where I actually knew much about this at all. But Christians are rediscovering the life-giving value and practice of creating a rule of life. And so the rest of this message is not really um, a sermon so much as it is a bit of a, a tutorial or an introduction on how do we build our own rule of life. And let me be clear, all of this is invitation. This is not a command. This isn't something the Bible says, thou shalt have a rule of life if. This is all invitation to grow deeper in Christ. I am still somewhat new to it. I am still very much like, okay, let's figure this out. Let's try this out. And so I'm not the expert on it, but I am inviting you to join me and, and try it out. So how do we define a rule of life? Um, well, you can find a bunch of different kind of definitions, but they all kind of get at the same thing. Pete Scazzaro from uh, the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, he defines it this way. He says, a rule of life is a trellis that helps us abide in Christ and become more fruitful spiritually. John Mark Comer, another pastor, he defines a rule of life this way. It's a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that make space for abiding, for being connected to Jesus. Tyler Staten, another pastor, defines it this way. He says, it's a way of living today in line with my deepest desires and God's deepest formation. So how do we begin to make a rule of life? Well, first, we need to identify what our current rule of life is. And you might say, well, I don't really have a rule of life yet. You actually do. Everyone does. Everyone has a rule of life. However, many of us, myself included for the longest time, are not really fully aware of what our rule of life is or what it's supporting. What kind of structure is it supporting? So we begin by asking questions, well, what are your morning routines? What do you listen to on your commute to work? How do you move through a work day? What are your typical evening and bedtime routines? What relationships do you invest in? And is a, is a small group Bible study and a church fellowship, is that part of the community that you invest in? When do you find quiet times to be with God's word and prayer? What's your diet and your exercise rhythms like? How do you use your money? When do you unplug and rest and tap into a creative hobby? All of that is your rule of life. It's the way that you do life. 
I actually like that phrase more. Before it was coined rule of life, it was kind of a toss-up. They're like, is it a way of life or a rule of life? And they chose rule, which is too bad because we kind of have an aversion to that word, word rules, right? Um, so think of it as a way of life. The question is not, do you have a rule of life, but rather, what results is your rule of life producing? Um, there's a saying in the business world uh, that says, your systems are perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the result that you are getting. And I believe this is also true for our life. I want to have a system that is designed to produce in me the fruit of the Spirit and a deep abiding in Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first step is becoming aware of what your current rule of life is. And if you were with us uh, back in August, we actually did this. Uh, we did what was called a habit audit, right? A simple audit of your life to just identify, hey, what are the daily and weekly, maybe monthly things that I devote my time, my energy, and my money on, on a regular basis? And then just to list those things out. And then to ask the follow-up question, what is that habit doing to me? What are those habits shaping me into becoming? The second step is to identify what are the practices that will help me then abide in Jesus. We uh, briefly explored this in August as well. We briefly touched on some of the spiritual disciplines or practices of Jesus that can help us toward that end. Practices that are meant to just connect us with God. They're not ends in and of themselves, like you don't go to church to say, oh, went to church, check mark, or yep, I spent five minutes in silence by myself today, check. Like, no, these are all practices that are just meant to create space for you to connect with God. And so we talked about what some of those core practices are, and you were invited to do what was called a micro-habit swap, simply starting where you're at, swapping a deformative habit in your life, for a formative habit. And again, micro, meaning small changes, something that's sustainable, not like I never read my Bible to, I'm gonna spend five hours a day reading my Bible. Like, it's not sustainable, right? But a micro habit could be swapping five minutes of scrolling through social media before bedtime. It's not doing anything formative for me. For five minutes of maybe reading a Psalm and doing a prayer of examine or the Lord's Prayer. Swapping maybe that third episode in a row on Netflix for 20 minutes of going out for a walk, getting some exercise, or maybe just giving someone your full presence. These are micro-habit changes that may not seem like they're significant, but they do something to us. And remember, we can't, we can't make joy and love and peace and patience and all the rest grow in our life. It's not the fruit of our own trying, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit in us. But just like a gardener, a gardener can't make a seed grow, but just like a gardener can be vigilant and consistent in weeding their garden, keeping pests out, watering, adding nutrition, uh, nutrients to the soil, so too, we can be vigilant, as Jeff said, guarding our hearts and tending to our soul 
and adopting consistent little practices that make our lives a hospitable environment where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Third, we need a plan and a system to help us integrate these formative practices into our life. This is what a rule of life is. It's a supportive structure that helps us be intentional in how we do life so that we can orient our whole lives in abiding and bearing much fruit. So then we need to know, well, what are the components that we need to build a rule of life? Like, what are the the spiritual kind of pillars of this trellis that I'm building? And here's the freeing truth, because some of you are like, I don't like systems and rules. Like, I'm a free spirit. I do my own thing. Great news for you. There's a lot of flexibility in this. There's not one way of building a rule of life. You can be creative in building one that helps you abide in Christ. So mine will look different than Jeff's, will look different than yours, because what I find life-giving and what helps me connect with God and what makes me come fully alive as a human being are different things than you or Jeff, and that's beautiful. However, a rule of life does have some foundation core components, and this is where we can learn and borrow from the deep wells of Christian traditions. This is where we can go back to the fourth and fifth century and say, hey, so these desert fathers and mothers, like, what did they discover in the desert? What did they discover about how to structure a life abiding in Christ? And there's really only four elements you need to build an intentional rule of prayer, or sorry, an an intentional rule of life. Prayer, rest, relationships, and work. And again, you might frame it slightly differently. Uh, The exercise I printed out gives you three different models on the second or last page. The the Covenant uh, Church has put out another way of looking at those four elements, and it's God's Word, relationships, obedient living, and worship. Or if you've known Pastor Jeff for any amount of time, you know that the four elements he frames his own rule of life is through the commandment of Jesus to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength. All slightly differently nuanced, but at the end of the day, all of those are the same thing. What they're trying to do is encompass all areas of your life. So let's just take the pray, rest, relationships, work, Example, prayer will include things like engaging scripture in all kinds of different ways, whether that's a small group Bible study, your devotional book, uh, what we did today, Lectio Divina, right? Just slow chewing on the word. Silence and solitude is included in it, so maybe a morning routine of just two minutes before you check your phone, maybe you spend that first two minutes sitting in silence giving God your attention and your first thoughts of the day. Fasting, that's a practice that is not very common in our culture, and it's one that I'm learning to appreciate more. Rest, that's the next component. This includes being intentional with getting enough sleep. Sleep is a spiritual practice. I love it, it's my favorite one. (laughs) People in our culture, they pride themselves in saying, oh, I only need four hours of sleep or I can get by with five. That may be true. You can get by with four or five. But modern medicine will suggest that for you to flourish, not just get by, 
the average human being needs a solid eight hours. In fact, before electricity, just a fun fact, people who worked arguably harder and more demanding jobs than most of us have, on average, they slept 11 hours a day. You don't have light, like what's there left to do after sundown, right? Um, on top of, of, of daily sleep, we need a Sabbath, not just a day off regular work to then engage in other busyness like your errands and your chores and cleaning the house. You need, you need that too. But I am becoming increasingly convinced that we need a 24-hour period of intentional rest where we cease from all busyness, where we delight in God's gifts to us, sleeping in, good food, a creative hobby, the outdoors, being with people we love and worship. Walter Brueggemann, uh, an Old Testament scholar, he says, there's a reason why the commandment to keep the Sabbath is smack dab in the middle of the commandments to love your God, right, the first three commandments, and then to love your neighbor. And right in the middle is keep the Sabbath. Why? Because he says, this is just, common sense. In order for you to love God well, in order for you to love others well, you need to be rested and refreshed. I am a miserable human being when I don't have enough rest. Just ask my wife. Relationships. This includes investing in those God has placed around you. Learning to, p- to put our phone o- and distractions away and giving someone our full attention. I need to learn that one. It means spending time with people who build us up. But we have to make an intentional plan to make this happen, right? How, how often do you not like connect with a friend and be like, wow, it's been so long since we've connected. Yeah, life just gets so busy. Well, no, duh, yeah, of course it does. If we want to invest in intentional relationships, we need to plan for it, we need to schedule for it. It doesn't just happen. Finally, work. What kind of a person do you want to be at your workplace? Do you move through your work life with intentionality and integrity, praying for your coworkers or your boss? Are you worshiping God through your work, through the daily tasks, as mundane as they might be, right? Bringing order onto a chaotic spreadsheet, bringing beauty on a construction site, bringing creativity into the home, working with children, or the lab, or the office. Also, the income you make from your work, how are you stewarding that? Is, is some of it going to support kingdom purposes? Is it supporting your church? Are you using some of it to be hospitable and inviting neighbors over for a meal? Those things don't happen automatically. You need to make a plan for it. And finally, your work is not just your employment and your income, but it's also giving of your time and your energy to benefit others, whether that's volunteering as a soccer coach on Saturdays or plugging in and being a Sunday school teacher here or a youth leader or whatever it might be, how are you blessing others with your time and energy? So a comprehensive rule of life should include all those areas of our life, whether it's the prayer, rest, relationships, work model, or the heart, soul, mind, and strength model, you can kind of choose which one you connect with the best. But at the end of the day, like Jeff shared, ask God maybe on a weekly basis, okay, God, where are you asking me to love you with all my heart this week? 
What's the step that you're asking me to deepen my, my love for you in the soul area? How are you asking me to train my mind, what I feed my mind, to love you more? Where are you calling me to expend my energy this week? Fourth, your rule of life needs to be expressed in specific practices. And this is where I've tried this in the past and I, my rule of life just never stuck. And it's because the key to a successful rule of life is to identify specific practices rather than just a general vision. What do I mean by that? So, for example, uh, in the area of relationships, right? A general vision might be, I want to be more present to people. That's great. But as Tyler Staten says, in order for your vision to become a reality, you actually need to make a vow to specific practices. So if the vision is be more present to people, then for me, the vow is, okay, when I come home from work, I need to put this thing away from 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. when my kids go to bed so that I can be more present with my kids and my wife. That's the specific practice. A general vision might be, I wanna be a generous person. That's great, but in order for that to become a reality, you need to make a specific vow to a specific practice. Like, I want to devote X amount to give to my church every check that I get. Or, I want to pay for one person's coffee three times a month. Specific practices. Five, put your rule life into a schedule, right? We all have a calendar. We all have a schedule. What are you vowing to do as a daily practice? Maybe it's a morning and evening prayer. Maybe it's putting away your phone during dinner time. What are weekly practices you want to commit? Maybe one to three times a week. Maybe you want to plug in with a weekly small group. Maybe you want to be intentional about creating a Sabbath in your week. What is a monthly practice? Maybe it's the tithe. Maybe it's volunteering once a month. Maybe it's hosting a meal with neighbors once a month. What are maybe yearly practices? Maybe it's a retreat. Maybe going through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Program or reading through the New Testament in a year. And then finally, six, revisit your rule of life regularly. Tweak it. Look back on your week and say, okay, how did I do in my goal to live out my rule of life? And don't do it as in like, oh, I'm a failure, I suck at this kind of way. But it's a growth trajectory and say, oh, I was intentional here. You know what, I probably could have been more intentional here. All right, let's pray and plan for the next week. So visit it regularly. Je uh, Jeff shared how he does it. He said once a week, or at least once a month, he goes back and says, okay, what are my core values? It's to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then at the beginning of the week to say, okay, God, this week, how are you asking me to love you with my heart relationships, right? This week, how are you asking me to go deeper into loving you with my soul? Yeah, I need, I need a richer prayer life or I need to maybe integrate it into my walk, whatever. And so revisit your rule and have the freedom to change it, to tweak it and say, this isn't working for me, but this is. I wanna try this. So it's flexible. I am no expert in this at all, but this is something that I am learning to do so that my life can be one that is abiding in Christ, bearing much fruit, and setting me up on a trajectory to 
be the kind of person that I intend to be, to be the kind of person God has intended for me to be. And then lastly, tell someone about it. Maybe you wanna do it as a small group. That's a great practice. Or call a friend and say, hey, you wanna get together over coffee and like let's make a rule of life together and just kind of hold each other accountable because I need encouragement. Um, I can't really do it alone. And I'll end with this encouraging question from Tyler Staten as he reflects on inviting his church to adopt a rule of life. He asks, don't see this as just like a list of rules and now my life is gonna be harder, but no. He says, what might it look like to be a community that actually looks like we've tasted from the true tree of life? How might that change us personally and as a community when people around us see wow, I see that person and that community like being loving and joyful and they're peaceful in this crazy time. Like what might it look like when people see individuals and a community that have tasted from the true vine? I think it's a huge witness. Imagine the light and the witness to our city of Nelson when we become a church community that is intentional, not being self-righteous or any of that, but just structuring our life around abiding in Jesus and then seeing that fruit to start to develop and grow in our life. Amen. Let's pray.